and welcome to the ResearchWorks podcast, brought to you in association with Curtin University and the Healthy Strides Foundation. Your hosts are Dr. Dana Poole and Dr. Ashley Thornton, and together we will interview world-leading researchers in the area of child health to support your practice in being more evidence-based. The team at the ResearchWorks podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land and waters on which we live and work. We pay our respects to all First Nations peoples, elders past and present, and would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast each week, the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We recognise their continued connection to this beautiful Buja we call home. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Research Works podcast. We are now midway through our second season. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Time really flies, doesn't it? I it cannot really believe does. that we are halfway through already. It's actually pretty frightening that we're halfway through a new year, which just mm. seems like it just started. But here we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just go with that. <laughs> well, look, I think we've learned so much during the season. I know I definitely have. And um, now that we're through, you know, halfway through the season, we thought it'd be a great opportunity just to have a bit of a breather and chat about some of the episodes that we've already had. Yeah, we, we thought we might do, yeah, a little bit of a review and some reflections on what we've talked about and uh-huh. what we've learned and some of the, the kind of key implications for practice that, yep. that everyone out there listening can kind of take away and hopefully start implementing into, you know, what they're doing and, yeah. and who, with who they're working with. So yeah. I think it's really useful to to flesh those kinds of ideas out because, like we said, it's about connecting all the dots mm. and, and when we – sat down and looked at all the episodes that we'd had this season there really were lots of dots that could be connected <laughs> they were yes. and you know some real kind of clear key takeaways that can help transform our practice yeah but just because we don't have a special guest today <laughs> but we're our special guests <laughs> yeah <laughs> doesn't mean we don't have the icebreakers you, cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know how I feel about icebreakers and I thought we could do something extra special today, okay. given that it is you and I and producer Ed here together today. We could each do an icebreaker. Oh, I love it. That's Three cool. icebreakers. Okay. Oh, that means I get one. Yeah. Quick fire icebreaker round. Okay. Nice. <laughs> right, my neurons are firing thinking of questions. So okay. I will start. <laughs> okay. Give you two some time to think. Okay. Or you also have to think about an answer to my question, but oh, also true. your own icebreaker question. Okay. So I'm really putting the pressure on you. My neurons are definitely firing now. <laughs> <laughs> so my question for you both is, mm-hmm. what reality show, what kind of reality show would you be on? Oh, look, okay. I think a reality show that I would totally be on would be The Amazing Race. Oh, good one. Yeah, I reckon that'd be really cool. I could do that. But the only thing is I get quite travel sick. So when I do (laughs) watch um, The Amazing Race... And I see them traveling really quickly or like in really confined spaces. It mm. makes me feel anxious because I know I'd be throwing up. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd be like drugged up, taking quells, but then I'd be really, really drowsy. Yeah. <laughs> and my mouth would be really dry from taking it. So I wouldn't be a great contestant, but it could be quite funny because I'd be throwing up so much. Totally. And you'd yeah. have to use up all your travel money on sick <laughs> bags. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I, I could imagine myself being on that. That's probably the yeah. most applicable one. That's a good question. That would be fun, actually. Yeah, yeah it would be really cool. Yeah. Mm. Ed, what about you? Oh, I think I'd have to say the the Amazing Race as well. Copycat. But, um, yeah, so I'm going <laughs> to change my answer, mm-hmm. and it's it's going to be funny because I I can't sing to save my life. 
I have something very close to perfect pitch, but I, I can't sing. <laughs> so I'd be one of those um, contestants on The Voice or like Australian Idol or something, mm-hmm. you know, those auditions that they have when the, the people clearly don't have a chance to win the idol or Oh, you're or just the like the, the, like the padding <laughs> the comedic, around the real The, the comedic element to the first part of the show. So yeah. I, I think that's, that's where I'd make a name for myself. <laughs> You'd be that guy from The Voice. Yeah, yeah. I think that's in the end of the day why you go on a reality TV show, hey? Yeah. It'd be to, you know, it's to make a name for yourself. And that's, that's a ways to it. Yeah, yeah. Ash, I want to know yours. Yeah, okay. So... I would love to go on Survivor. I, I think just being able to test yourself yes. in that environment and see if you really can <laughs> outlast <laughs> out in all the elements. Yep. I just I love the idea of that kind of challenge. Wow. I'd be totally useless at the whole like s- social strategy side of the game <laughs> and like trying to outwit people because yeah, that's yep. just – not in my skill set. I love you put all those um, the key words that make yeah. up Survivor. They're yeah. nice one. <laughs> Super fan. No, yeah. not really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Can you yeah. can you make a fire? Uh, I think with some practice, yep. I could. Yep. I could. Yeah, I could yep. give it a crack. Yep. Can you find some tapioca? Sure. Why not? Season one for for those yeah. who remember that one. <laughs> I do remember that. I need to find some tapioca. <laughs> that's all she could talk about. <laughs> nice one. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's so really I'd love cool. to give that a try. But uh-huh. I also think Amazing Race would be so much fun, and It'll you get cool. to see so many cool yeah parts of the world. Yeah. Well, just don't have me as your buddy because I'll just be throwing up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I need someone who could you know, run and Actually throw up go. at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> that was a really good question. Okay. Well, I have come up with one because it was based on travel. Um, well, that relates to my answer for this question. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back. So what is your favourite um, confectionery Ooh. and why? Oh, such a good question. Yeah. Ed, do you want to go first? Oh, um, I, I don't have much of a, a sweet tooth, but um, so I guess my answer is going to go away from being sweet. Um, but I like like 99% um, chocolate. So yeah. that's that's probably my level of confectionery. It's that beautiful bitter taste and great with coffee and yeah. Mm. So oh, that's my, okay. my confectionery of choice. Oh, okay. So he likes the 99. All right. Okay. All right. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So are we talking <laughs> about categories of confectionery or one specific? Could be a specific one because sometimes, yeah, there's something that really draws you in. Yeah. Yep. I love a Malteser. Malteser? I can't go past a Malteser. Uh-huh. Because they're especially the ones that are with the extra chocolate around them now. Because oh, you've got like the yes. thick layer of chocolate yes. and then a the nice malt center. Yes, and it, it's just a nice balance. And I also, when I go to the movies, I like to tip my to- Maltesers into the popcorn, <laughs> so you get like the mix of salty and sweet. <laughs> That's so cool. I've never heard anyone do that before. Yeah, and the, Great idea. if the popcorn's warm, then it yes. kind of takes. Yeah, you get a little bit of oh melty chocolate goodness. on your popcorn. Yeah, that's yep. really good. Was that your own invention? Or did um, someone sort of teach you that? No, I don't think I can take credit for that one. Mm. I think that's, yeah, I, I would have heard about that elsewhere. Okay. Well, yeah. you've heard it now in the Research Weeks podcast, yeah. guys. <laughs> <laughs> but if we're going for like a, a other type, I think raspberry licorice is also really delicious Ooh, as yum, well. Yum, yeah. yum. Yeah, that's really cool. So I that's like a that cheap one. two answers, sorry. Yeah, yeah that was. But <laughs> okay, you've got, you've, got the, you've got the chocolate category and the yeah. lolly category. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the reason why mine relates to travel is because I love 
Snickers bars. Absolutely adore them. There's just something about that nougat and that peanut. And so I only ever really buy a Snickers bar Mm. when I travel. So it's like the last thing I buy at the shop. I get my water so I can have my quells. (laughs) (laughs) And then I always have a Snickers bar. And because I haven't traveled the last two and a half years, I really haven't had much Snickers. I just get like little cheats from, you know, the favorites and I have that so I'm not really having my full Snickers bar. Yeah, bite size. Yeah, bite size one. So when I next travel, I'll be buying probably two or three Snickers bars to make up for it. Definitely. That's mine. Yeah. That's my confectionery. Okay, Ed, have you got an ice? I'm a bit nervous. I'm one. so nervous about this. This is the first time that Ed has been brought into the the icebreaker <laughs> it has been realm. Don't know what and this is we be know like. he likes to ask a question. Mm. So I'm I'm excited and nervous about this. Yeah, same. Yeah, I, I'm just as excited to find out. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I've been put on the spot, but I'm thinking, um, what, what what if you had what if you had your own time machine? If you had a, you, you know you were Marty McFly, you picked up the DeLorean, mm-hmm. and you had a chance to go back uh, back in time, mm. either to view something or to change one particular thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what what would be your choice? Where oh. would you go? What would you do? Hmm. You got me thinking about the butterfly effect now. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I've got one in my head. Do you want to keep thinking or have you got one? You go. I, okay. Oh. okay. Well, mine okay. goes back to travel again. I've obviously got traveling <laughs> on my brain. I would travel back to 2019 to wherever it was where the coronavirus was born <laughs> and I'll just get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that exciting, but it's really, I'm really over it. I'm really over the pandemic and it just seems to keep continuing. So look, we don't actually know the source properly yet. There's a lot of conspiracy theories around that. So I'd probably a little bit, be a little bit lost, but I'd probably yeah. go to the lab and I'd also go to the the, the marketplace and, yeah. and find a way to make sure that those animals didn't meet and yeah. then we wouldn't get the virus. Yeah. That's yeah. mine. It's the butterfly effect. You could make it worse though. Mm. Oh gosh. Is this a trick question, Ed? Yeah, this does uh, no, feel no, no, like no. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got one now, Ash? I think I've got one. It's mm-hmm. quite a selfish one, really. <laughs> it's um, okay. <laughs> I think I'd like to go back to, I don't, I don't know if it was the 60s or the 70s, like when all the really cool music festivals were oh, around, like start of Woodstock, Woodstock and things like that and yep. Glastonbury and, yep. yeah, just experience. So you wouldn't change anything. You would just I, go back and make yeah, sure you don't affect anything. Yeah, that's why I said anything. it was selfish because I just right. I'd love to just go back and experience that time. Yes, but yeah. you'd have to make sure no one knew you were there. Otherwise, you would really I could like, change things. You could. Yeah. Like, you know, your your parents might not meet. That's true. Yeah. Stuff like so, that. So, yeah, you've got to be – So you've I really think that's careful. far enough removed yeah, 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 from yeah. – my life, yeah, that it shouldn't change anything <laughs> materially. I hope <laughs> this hypothetical time machine that we're going in. <laughs> no, I like it. Yeah, I thought Woodstock would be great. Can yeah, you imagine being there. Yeah, Ed, where did this come from? What are you thinking? I have to admit, I, I didn't really think too much about the answer, but I, I'm thinking that m- maybe I go all the way back to the beginning of time. Oh, <laughs> like, if I have a time machine, change? I can go anywhere I like. Well, yeah. I want to see where it all started. Like. If you're a creationist and it's Adam and Eve in the garden, then I want to know like what happened when they ate the apple and 
they got kicked out of the garden. <laughs> and if you're not a creationist, I want to know what happened with the Big Bang. What yeah. was before the Big Bang? You really are getting oh. the most value for money out you of are. your time machine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because it will affect all of time. True yeah. enlightenment. Yeah. Oh, okay. The, yeah, I knew I was nervous for that question because there's actually so much more to it than my Snickers bar. Yeah. That just reminded me of dinosaurs and I learned a really fun fact. Yes. What's that? The other day, which I haven't fact-checked. Yeah. But I'm prepared to put it out there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there is chronologically as uh-huh. much time between the Stegosaurus dinosaur and the Tyrannosaurus rex uh-huh. as there is between the Tyrannosaurus rex and the iPhone. Get out. Yeah. Wow. I thought they were friends. Well, yeah. not friends, like, you know, T-Rex roommates. Yeah. 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 They were, yeah, they co- were cohabiting. Were... Wow. They're yeah. not. Wow. How crazy is that? did not know that. that. I thought that was all the same time. Yeah. I couldn't tell you how much time that is, but it's, I know it's a lot. <laughs> a lot of time. <laughs> I like that fun fact. Yeah. Yeah. We need to, um, I don't even know how to fact check that, but we can fact yeah. check all the stuff we're about to talk about. We, we can. We definitely can. And we, we have. And yeah, I think that is a nice way to move into the, the actual facts mm-hmm. of the papers that we talked about this season so far. And like we said, pulling together, I suppose, the, the key themes and messages that, like it. that we think, you know, are the threads that tied all these episodes together. Yes. And, and when we did go through and, and look at who we'd spoken to and mm. what we'd spoken to them about, I think, mm. you know, it was quite clear that there were some probably three main things that came yeah. out yep. across those episodes, yep. weren't there? Yep. And I love how we um, – we, well, I mean, mainly you did that because you're like a really good qualitative researcher <laughs> where you can look at all the themes and, and categorise them. So I was really impressed how you did that. But I think, you know, putting them together in that sort of context helps to bring in all the information because otherwise you can just listen to, um, you know, new information at a time. But actually putting that all together, it's really helpful, isn't it, to have yeah. a framework? Yeah, mm. and I think it, it reinforces a lot of things that, yeah. you know, quite a few people spoke about across right. those episodes. Yeah. It's really consistent evidence now. Like it's all building on top of each other, which is the whole point of research, right? Yeah. It's never an isolation. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's the first theme? So the first theme that we thought was really apparent in a lot of the episodes that we have had so far Mm -hmm. is the power of co-design. I love it. Right? Yep. 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 And, you know, it started with the very first episode of season two where we talked about our qualitative study um, and, you know, the the experiences of families Mm. with uh, locomotor training mm-hmm. and their perspectives on mm-hmm. that. And I think it's a really powerful message that if you involve consumers in yep. the design of interventions, yep. it ensures that, you know, there's sustainability beyond just that research project, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. And it has to be about that. Otherwise, it's a bit of a waste of time. Like, you know, you might find this great finding, but then is it applicable in the real world? Like, how do we, how do we translate it? Because, they don't. They don't come. I think we can't take it for granted that one thing leads to another. There has to yeah. be a body of work that that links it, and that co-design, the consumer involvement, was key. Mm-hmm. Like I think um, putting all the locomotive train to practice now, which we do every day at Healthy Strides, for example. Mm-hmm. Like all the principles, how we do it, how we communicate with families about it as well, um, how we schedule things in, was all based on everything they said. Yeah, yeah, yeah so it's powerful, really isn't cool. it? Yeah, yeah, I really love that. And I think it was really emphasised by our chats with Laura Miller mm-hmm. um, about Envisage mm-hmm. and, you know, that's such a beautiful example, again, of the power of co-design. And yep. That is a, a huge research program mm. that in every phase mm. they have, you know, treated consumers as equal yep. research partners yep. in the research process. Yep. And, you know, that ensures that 
the this program that they've designed really meets the needs of the people that they're working with, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and so you're never really assuming that you know all things. And I, I actually think it takes the pressure off as a researcher to kind of feel like you need to, to know it. Yes. You're not expected to know it, but no. you need to know that um, the people who are going to be receiving the service, mm-hmm. who've experienced it themselves, are going to be able to guide you on that. So that's why, you know, particularly for Envisage, you know, given how early diagnosis, that real early phase, yeah. you, you, we don't really want to get that wrong. No one sets out to get that wrong in that early part of it. Yeah. But what are the key things that we can do to help people in their journey? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we spoke to Helen Burke Taylor about yes. healthy mothers, healthy families. Yeah. And again, a really nice example of a program that mm. is designed to support families through, you know, some really difficult yeah. times and, yeah. and challenges that they, they come up you know, come up against Mm. in their journey through, Mm. you know, navigating the world of um, disability and um, therapy services and and taking care of um, from a, from a, family perspective and a mum's perspective, yep. taking care of themselves yep. and, and valuing their health and well-being as much as that of the rest of their family. Yeah. And the power of that mm. and and how healthy mothers, as the title says, yeah. ultimately, <laughs> yep. you know, lead to healthy families and yep. taking care of the mum or the primary yep. caregiver is just as important as taking care of the children. Yeah, I love that. I love how you summarise that. I think um, it's good knowing in anywhere in the world that these programs exist mm-hmm. and that they're available. The research is evolving in that, but we have identified, we know this is something that we need to work on. We know that we need to be supporting people. We mm-hmm. can we can now point people in the right direction as well. So yeah, yeah I really like that. Yeah. 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 And and again, reinforced by our chats with mm-hmm. um, Hayley Passmore and the oh, Reframe so um, a program yep. for youth in juvenile Detention, detention yep. um, with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Yeah, you know, really encouraging um, the people working with those youth to to understand them and yes. to take perspective yes. in a way that's appropriate for them. You know, and she worked mm. a lot with the the, the workers in those facilities mm. to develop a program that met their needs yep. and also met the needs of the youth as well. Yeah. So I think again a really nice example of, yep. you know, how effective that can yep. be. And that training is now rolled out, you know, all across Australia. Like yeah. I know she's been going to all different centres and and now from an educational perspective, people want to use that framework to be able to support kids in school. So now that's mm. had this translation effect. And and I really loved how they broke everything down. We need really understanding like the neurodisability element of it yep. and all the components and, um, you Such know. Such practical they, examples. Yeah, it was yeah. so good because the practicality was there because that's what they said they needed yeah. to understand to support and to treat they needed all of that so that was such a great great episode yeah Yeah, and and the other example I thought of you know when when we talk about the power of co-design was Ellen Armstrong's episode Mm. on functional electrical stimulation and how really you can incorporate the consumer voice in program delivery yeah yeah I think that's a really good one particularly for FES where you know um it's an uncomfortable stimulation feeling mm. on your legs as well. And she has some great strategies of kind of going, yeah, this is what it might feel like. This is some words you can use around that as well. Yeah. And um, it doesn't mean that you sort of throw everything out. You can have the strategies of how you can implement it into in together as well. And yeah. I love how that actually all the findings from that was very similar to the research that we had done in the qualitative as well. So again, it's just compounding, yeah. you know, all the knowledge about, you know, this is if you want to deliver an intervention, these are the things that you really need to think about because they influence outcomes. Yeah. 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 I really, really love it. And I think that's um, 
you know, supported by Nadine Smith's episode where she described how to involve consumers in addressing important clinical issues. Mm. You know, the focus of her paper and, and that project was pain and addressing yes. pain for children with dyskinesia. Yep. Um, but, you know, designing an intervention that addresses a clinical need but is suitable for families. And, yes. that, you know, I think often we have, some, you know, we have an intervention that we know to be effective yeah, um, and there's evidence to show that it's effective. But yep. the way that that works for a family, you know, yep. might not necessarily necessarily be a feasible intervention for a family and if you know for example you know a a movement intervention might be effective if you uh, deliver it three times a week Uh that might not always be feasible for a family so Nadine's was a really nice example of you know something that can be delivered once a week Mm -hmm. the families find that to be you know suitable and feasible and they're actually showed some positive outcomes from that yeah, as well. Yep. So, you know, you can That's tailor right. things yep. to, to meet people's needs. Yeah, and I love how she did that and how she spoke with the families about that need as well because given the population she was working with, you know, you've got to consider all the equipment and, yeah. you know, the the number of medical comorbidities that you may need to be treating. Mm-hmm. And what I loved about that is, yes, the once a week worked because it matched the goal as well. Yes. The goal wasn't developing a new functional skill. It was to address pain. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you – you don't have to do all that intervention if you're aiming for reducing pain. Yeah. And I think that just makes it so much more feasible. You feel like you can achieve it. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was such a good one. Yeah. And I love the single subject research design yes. from a perspective of any clinicians out there or researchers who want to explore an area. This mm. is something that you can do. Very little money required in terms yep. of grant funding. You can integrate into your practice. Yeah. You know, it's it's a yep. really, really good starting point that still gives you good, robust evidence. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this also extends into assessment tools as well and how we can make them work best for the mm. people who need the information. Yep. And, and Paula Shagas's episode uh, where we talked about her work developing the the GMFM family report, yeah. I think was a beautiful example oh, of I this. I love that. It was so good. Yeah. And I can't wait for that to come out. Like yes. the number of people have been asking, like, when does it come out? I'm like, well, they said in the year and I can't wait because yeah. I think it's something that we – um, as clinicians really want. So they've really heard that part of it. They've yeah. heard what families really want. Yeah. And in light of all things pandemic and telehealth, mm. well, they found an alternative, yeah. which I think will last. Yeah. And a, and a beautiful example of an, you know, an evidence-based way of modifying mm. a tool to, yeah. to suit your needs. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. really like that. So that's, there's a lot there in terms of co-design. You can see that a lot of the research papers that we've spoken about have all really adopted that. And that, mm. that speaks to the success of the paper and the outcomes. Um, question over to you, Ed, because we are including you in this like all the way throughout now, um, oh, wow. just for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get too excited. Yeah, that's right. What do you think about co-design? I mean, co-design seems to be a word that we're using a lot at the moment. Mm. It's definitely a hot word when it comes to research. But it describes something we've always been wanting to do anyway, like yeah. involving people you know, in a way that matters. What do you think about all that? I have to admit, I'm, I'm a little surprised that it, it's kind of a, a buzzword. I, I would have assumed that it, it's kind of part and parcel of the process. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm currently towards the very end of a, an ICT degree. And um, everything about that from a – well, I'm studying programming. Everything about that is very – uh, user focused, so mm. um, the co-design part of of you know an app designer or an app developer and its key target audience and demographic, like that information goes back and forth yeah. so often that it, it helps the entire process and mm, helps yeah. the application grow and yeah. kind of fulfil the need that it needs to be. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm just kind of really surprised that it's kind of 
uh, a hot buzzword. I like I, I'm. I don't quite understand how it would have functioned without family's input. <laughs> yeah, and I think originally it probably, you know, in the early science, when you're trying yeah. to find the early science, that's probably what it was. And the actual application of it now just, you know, I think it's been increased recognition that that's where, where research needs to head. Yeah, and mm. I, think, I think historically, you know, perhaps people found it quite daunting to um, – you know, they, they, they're keen to make sure that it's done in a really authentic yes. way and yes. and perhaps, you know, there was a bit of, yeah, nervousness about doing that properly mm. and, and mm. making sure people are acknowledged correctly for their contribution yeah. to the co-design process. Um, but I think, you know, champions like Anne McKenzie yeah. um, and who does such a beautiful job of, you know, empowering researchers mm. to, to feel confident to involve mm. people in their research and also inv- empowering consumers to feel confident in being involved yeah. in research, you know, yep. that there's lots of work going on in this area, which means yep. it is easier to implement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, having champions like that that have really pushed it forward has been mm. the key because the last thing you want is for it to be a token involvement yes. where you just – it's a tick box exercise because yes. the funding grant said you needed to involve consumers. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not really authentic. Yeah. Um, but there are skills that are required to make them authentic and there's courses yeah. that you can do and, yep. and Anne McKenzie teaches is that I know you've done a lot of that haven't you yeah yeah yeah. I think it's you know it is a skill but it's something that really highlights this is the other end of it what it looks like at the other end yeah and it's yeah ultimately a a sustainability tool that's right yeah yeah Yeah. I think another key theme that you know speaking of tools (laughs) another another (laughs) key thing that that came out and we just touched on it briefly with Paula Shagas's episode yeah um is the importance of measurement and understanding what you're measuring and mm, why. Yeah. And, you know, I think there were a few episodes that we um, covered this in. So yes. I thought we could kind of, yeah, wrap all that up together in a nice little package. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I think the, the thing about measurement is always being able to distinguish what you're measuring, like you said. So there's, you know, I always have to think about what they all mean, but they yeah. do make sense once you, once you really think it through. So there's, you know, there's performance, capacity and capability. Yep. And I think that there's a setting, you know, within research, you really want to measure capacity because you want to mm. be quite standardized, right? You mm-hmm. want to have the setting quite, the, you know, the same so that you can really truly compare from one condition to another yeah. in a very true way. Yeah. And capacity yeah. helps you to control as many things as you can, I That's guess. Right. So that, yeah, That's right. you can yeah. tease out that one thing that yeah. you're looking for a change in. That's right. That's yeah. right. And I think knowing capacity, if you can increase capacity, like we talk about our own capacity, if we want to increase that, the whole idea is that we increase our resources to be able to perform a particular activity. Yeah. So even though you might just be able to do it um, in a very controlled environment, you've shown that you can do it. Mm. The translation then becomes whether you can do that in everyday life and that's yes. performance. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So performance, you know, what someone actually does in their current environment in in the context that they would normally do it in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Paula talked about really, um, I really enjoyed the conversation with Paula where she discussed, you know, that kids would come in to, to ho- they'd do their hospital walk yeah, in hospital and, yeah, you know, right. when they're being assessed yep. and, you know, that might kind of be uh, <laughs> an indication of capacity yep. or capability yep. but yep. not necessarily performance. performance. And ultimately what yeah. we're trying to uh, change mm. is performance, right? Mm, that's right. It doesn't have to be done perfectly. The whole idea is that children can do what they want um, to meet their needs and their goals. Yeah. And so when know, they want to. That's right. That's right. And yeah. so we need to be able to measure that. So, um, and I love, again, going back to Paula Shagas again, is that you, 
because of the, the tools designed the way it is and the family's inputs there, we can standardize the assessment of that. Mm-hmm. You are measuring performance. So you've got a better idea of like what's actually happening at home and do they have the right equipment to support them? Because they might not have all the standardized bars at certain heights for them to do things at yeah. home. So what does that actually look like? Yeah. Yeah. Loved that. I really, really liked that one. Um, Simon Garbellini's episode, we mm. covered uh, the importance of classification tools yes. and their place in, in clinical practice. Yes. Um, and so I think, you know, we have this really nice combination of assessment and classification mm. tools telling us about how different factors contribute to a child's function yep. um, and, you know, help us to determine different intervention pathways. Yeah, right? yeah, I really like that. I think we always need to know our classifications. I think mm. there's there are a lot out there, but the whole idea of that is to help to streamline our communication yep. and also give us a starting point of where we can, we can start to treat. And I mm-hmm. love how Simon developed, you know, the hand deformity scales that we could actually look at, you know, where they might be at, what interventions you might do. And for anyone new coming into the profession, or might not be seen as many children with cerebral palsy, for example, mm. this just tells you where you can start yep. and, you know, um, some treatments you can do, some assessments it can relate to. And I really like how that's that's really structured and that related also to um, – thinking about Magnus as well, Magnus yeah, Pollen's yeah. article about the MRI classification yes, scale. I didn't yes. know about the MRI one. Um, but that, again, just tells you the mechanism of injury or the area of injury um, and how that relates to potentially ASD and yep. ADHD yeah. and things that you might better put to your practice early as well. Yeah. yeah. And, and what a beautiful example of, you know, such a, a detailed <laughs> registry that they have over there <laughs> yeah. in Sweden yeah. and just the richness yeah. of information yeah. that mm. he was able to to pull together to mm. inform that classification. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, such valuable information, isn't it? Is. It, it makes I, a real difference to the families that they're working with. It absolutely does. And I think from from there in terms of how we could use it, I mean the whole idea is if we can incorporate more of these classification tools and mm-hmm. assessment tools in our communication with each other as clinicians, yes. then we can make that journey a whole lot smoother for the children that we work with and their yeah. families because then yeah. they don't have to be telling everyone, look, there was this part of the brain that was affected and yeah. this is what's happened as a result and function, this is what we see and the hand does this and, yeah. you know, we can we can ease that by having these tools to use and um, that's yeah. the whole idea, right, yeah. of how we can communicate. So it. would you say it's like standardising communication? Yeah, I yeah. think so. I think so. I know I definitely start all of our reports that way is to sort of really lay the foundation of it and you know in the old days our reports would be really long to be describing in sitting they do this and they do this and they do this but imagine you know when you have the the gmffrs that you can say you know exactly yeah. where they're standing with that and you go okay i've got a picture in my head it it fleshes out the gmfcs a bit more mm-hmm. um the max we can flesh it out a whole lot more with the yeah. hand um hand deformity assessment tool yeah um and then with the mris as well you can sort of put all that information in there and it just gives you a really standardized way to then justify Mm. why you're doing what you're doing yeah um and i think we need to be as health professionals that is our responsibility to to pull that all together because then Mm. it gives the reason of why we're doing what we're doing yeah like it has to come back down to that yeah yeah i love that Mm. and then you know on the subject of assessment tools we had Corin's, you know, beautiful episode on helping us to understand the journey of firstly a PhD, but also how to develop an evidence base for new assessment tools as they become available. You know, technology is constantly evolving and there's constantly new ways of of being able to Mm. assess uh, and understand children's movement and function, but it's, 
you know, making sure that you use those in an evidence-based way. And if there is no evidence-based for them yet, you know, how you might start to develop that. I think that was a really nice example of of how you might go about it. It really was. Like, yeah, I would would echo that as well. The PhD journey was definitely, (laughs) you know, a tricky one because Mm. of all the development that needed to happen. Um, A great example of what a multidisciplinary team looks like, like, you know, you need to have tech involved as well and engineers. Oh my goodness, so (laughs) much to coordinate. So amazing work by Corin. Um, But I I really, really enjoyed the fact that they looked at technology and looked at sensors Mm. and um, and not just, I feel like we always think that technology is going to solve all our problems. Yeah. I, I mean, I think they'll be great without the whole, you know, takeover, of course, like the Terminator. Mm. You want technology to help you, but sometimes it's not where it needs to be just yet. Yeah. Um, and we need to validate them. So if you are, I loved how that episode then talked about, if, you know, if you're in the market for looking at technology and investing into sensors, mm. just know that there are pitfalls in these areas. Yeah. Um, they could be used for this, but again, coming back down to the goal of why, because otherwise you're not really capturing, yes. you know, if the, if the sensors aren't um, accurate enough, you're not capturing the change that may, might be being made or yeah. you're overestimating the change that's being made and you're not yeah. pursuing something else that'd be more effective. Yeah. Took the words right out of my mouth. Ah! It comes back to that point of understanding <laughs> yep. what you're measuring yeah. and why you're measuring yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. You yep. still have to have, you know, technology, like you say, technology is not going to do that for you. <laughs> so you still need to have that understanding, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. So I think yeah, there's a there's a lot there in terms of tech. I know Ed, you had a lot to to say when it came to all things tech as well. But I guess in terms of measurement and classification, you've had a bit of a um, bit of a big lesson on that. We've talked about a fair bit there. <laughs> yeah, look, there's there's definitely like a lot there that that I had kind of heard for the first time and understanding classification scales. Um, I'm not in the healthcare space, so it, it's it's a little difficult to follow at times. But I appreciate <laughs> that there a lot of work goes into these sorts of things that mm. that gives um, therapists and professionals the 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 tool set that they need to move forward. And mm. you, you touched on tech, and um, it's kind of interesting that a lot of people kind of look at tech to solve the problems, but mm-hmm. a lot of it is a is a black box, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of stuff that kind of hides behind a curtain where some things just kind of get automated where you think there's a genuine process involved in it, like yeah. with sensors. Yeah. Some of these algorithms just kind of predict the movement as mm. opposed to mm. actually log the yep. the you know, the X, Y, and Z coordinates of, of the movement itself. So it it takes a lot to kind of use tech in the way that you want it to, to yeah. work. And yeah. Yeah. maybe it's not quite there for some of the things that some professionals kind of assume that the yeah. tech is, is <laughs> capable is. of. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting and emerging field, I guess. Yeah. And they go hand in hand. Like you, it just shows the power. All the classification tools and the assessments we just spoke about are based on observation of people who mm-hmm. either one of families that know their children really well yep. um, or professionals like, you know, OTs and physios and doctors who can look at something with their own clinical experience, mm. glean from that and then mm-hmm. give it an assessment a number. You know, like you, you can't do it in isolation. Yeah. There is that skill that you can develop over time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're constantly reminded of the best practice principles to improve function in cerebral palsy. That was something else that was really evident to me when I looked through our episodes. Um, And we talked about, you know, back in season one, towards Mm -hmm. the end of season one, we spoke Mm -hmm. to Michelle Jackman, Mm -hmm. who was the lead author on the International Clinical Practice Guidelines. Yep. Um, and so I think, you know, throughout season two, there's been lots of really nice examples of 
how you actually implement those in yeah. in research and in practice. Yep. Yeah, I think um, that episode with Michelle Jackman and going through each of the recommendations was so great, wasn't it? It really yeah. set the foundation. I know that relates a lot to cerebral palsy, but it does relate to a lot of cerebral palsy-like conditions mm-hmm. or neurodisabilities, a broader term, yep. because they were really practical. They're really top-down yep. Um principles are really supported by research and I think we can feel feel really confident what they are but I like how over the episodes we've had we've teased it out so you know goal setting is sounds so very simple but it is so important yeah yeah Yeah. and you know Georgina Clutterbuck's episode Mm -hmm. where we talked about goal setting and practicing the whole goal in a real life context coming back to that idea of performance yeah that's right that's that's so important and you know, her her paper was a really beautiful demonstration of yep. you know the the impact of that. Yeah, and I look, I that episode sticks with me a fair bit. I remember the comment that she made about you know why the sports stars are so important because mm. so many of our children do spend so much time in therapy, particularly in the early days. And yep. yeah, they're great to to build capacity, mm-hmm. um, but the actual ability to execute that in terms of a performance in real life context was missing. Yeah, and they missed out on those beautiful opportunities to be part of sporting groups and learn those you know basic skills of working with others as well. That yeah. you know are actually really important and. So if you think about performance, you know, if you're having a session at the park, you know, there is great value in that. If you're having yeah. a session with the park with more friends, there's even greater value in that. Yeah. Like it's it's really worthwhile saying that that's a really important intervention, right? Yes. And it, mm. you know, always comes back to that pearl that, you know, kids don't do therapy to get good at therapy, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's one of, one of my favorite lines I'd say because, yeah, you could be a therapy expert. And I, can, <laughs> I can stand on one leg in this environment really, yeah. really well, yeah. but um, I have trouble walking over obstacles when I'm out and about and yeah. that limits me. You know, like yeah. I think there was a good, that was a really good one from Georgina. I really yeah. loved it. Uh, you know, we've talked about working together as part of a team and clinicians being able to share knowledge about evidence-based interventions, which yeah. is another one of those best practice principles. Yes. And I think it was covered really nicely in Anna Tavelde's episode. Yeah, that was such a great episode, wasn't it? Like that, And I know that episode's been um, listened to a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's one of our highest listened to episodes because I think there's a lot to, to learn from that. And I yeah. think people are really keen and interested to, to know where the evidence is at with that. But the point of that, again, was, wasn't the one person's opinion. It was yeah. really, it was a really robust methodology yeah. that looked at studies from a long time ago as yeah. well and, um, and really tried to pull all that together. Yeah, multiple sources of information yeah. and being able to, yeah, like you say, pull that together yeah. and provide information about evidence. Yeah, right? that's right. That's right. And yeah. I like how we sort of teased, we, we spent sp- some time teasing out what those principles of motor learning that create neuroplasticity are. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of backed by the conversation that we had with um, with Sarah yeah. Reedman and Leanne Sakswishki about habitual as well. Yes, yes. So they're all kind of really related in terms of what does motor learning principles and neuroplasticity principles actually look like because yeah. you can kind of skew it a bit um, if you're not careful because you can try to match things up that way. But yeah, they were really good at teasing that out. Yes. And that it's, you know, not just the repetition, you know, that constant yes. repetition, which, you know, makes sense from a neuroplasticity perspective, yep. but there's so many other components to it, to that too. And again, relating back to our best principles, yep. things like goal setting, yep. um, 
you know, and and the salience of what you're trying yes. to work on, uh, you know, it being fun, yeah, uh, being able to transfer what you're learning into mm-hmm. the performance mm-hmm. kind of context, yep, and, that's and right. being able to do it in a in real life the way mm-hmm. that you would do it at home or at school mm-hmm. or at the park with your friends yep. is so important. It is, it is, and I like how they really broke down the difference then from a whole task and the and a part task practice. Mm-hmm. You know, the ideal is the whole task because that's transference. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to go part task, it has to be directly related to the goal, not breaking it down to a single body structure and function impairment, mm-hmm. but really still looking at the activity level that's going to make sense in the performance of the activity. Yeah, and I like that we were able to talk about that. Um, and and you know the whole salience part of it we spoke about how you know how can you tell if someone's actually enjoying themselves and it's the <laughs> basics like they're having fun yeah. they're laughing they're talking to their therapist they want to be there they're motivated to yeah, do it yeah that's right because being motivated to do it is actually a really key component of learning your skill yeah we all know what it's like if you've got a bad attitude learning something you're like oh my gosh it feels like a chore it is absolutely a chore you know when yeah. you're rote learning something for an yeah. exam for yeah. example you don't 100%. really remember at the end of it <laughs> but if you actually put it in a context of how this is meaningful you do learn that and yeah. it, it, it sticks with you for a much longer period yeah. of time hey yeah yeah i can you know all of the units i did at university that i felt really passionately yes. about I rem- I can you know mm-hmm. I could tell you so much about those yes. the ones that I like you say that you wrote learn and yep. you, and it is a chore to learn things about yep. as soon as you leave that exam yep. you forget it all yeah that's right yeah. and and things that don't make sense to you so if you have a really good teacher like we can all think of those great teachers yeah. right that would teach you something but give you a good context for it. And then you go, oh, I get why I need to learn this now. It makes sense for me. But if you teach me something that's a bit too far removed from it, but you don't give me context, I'm not interested and I don't remember it. You've lost me. There's so many things that I like that. And I think we need to remember that our children learn in exactly the same way. Things that Mm. work for us are things that may work for them as well. And um and the language of children is kind of, you know, fun. I mean, it should be for all of us, but, yeah. <laughs> but it's fun and meaning. Like yeah. there has to be that. So, um, yeah, they, they sound simple, but again, they they have a lifelong impact. Like you still remember yeah. <laughs> things like that. Yeah, and, for yeah. sure. And, yeah, yeah the, the importance of good teachers, like you say, is mm. so I could, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know anything about biomechanics until my second year biomechanics uh-huh. units and I had the most brilliant lecturer yep. Jackie Alderson she's probably not oh, listening shout yes, out yes she was the best teacher I ever had wow. she just knew how to explain things brilliantly and, yep. and broke it down and gave such you know appropriate context for what yep. we were learning yep. that it made it easy oh, I love that so I want to go on that a bit more because I think um that just for me I've got light bulb moment here of like in terms of how it works right so when we're talking about um, really part task tasks because mm. one of my questions to Sarah was like, "How part is part?" <laughs> She's like, "Hmm, yeah, that's that's it's true because we talk about part, but if you if you break it down too much into mm. a small small increment that mm. doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. you're not going to remember it. Yeah, and then you're always reliant on someone to uh, to show you that. So yes. in the instance of biomechanics yeah. if you don't really get that in a context and the way it's taught in a, in a meaningful way, you're going to be reliant on that person. To explain it to you again. every single time. Yeah. And it's really annoying for that person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Explain it to me again. Yeah. I feel like I do that to statisticians all the time. I can't quite get it. I'm like, you need to explain that to me yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. But the reason why you've identified her as a good teacher is 
is because she taught it in a way that met your needs yeah. in a way that you could apply it. Yes. And then her job then is done because you're not completely reliant on her. So yeah. the owner Novax, whose brain is doing the work, yeah. comes back down to that. Absolutely. Right, it's transferring it. Another pearl. Another pearl. I loved <laughs> that one. I think um, there's a lot to, to glean from all of that and yeah. I, I really enjoy those conversations. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, talking about clinicians sharing knowledge and um you know, about their learnings as well. Also reminds me of our conversation with Taylor Penny. Oh, yes. Back yes. at the start of season two. Yes. When we talked about, you know, the rap models and, you know, it was a little bit out of our comfort zone and <laughs> yeah. our area of expertise, but, yep. you know, she did a beautiful job of she explaining really it to us. And yep. I think it that episode for me highlights how important it is, uh, you know, firstly that clinicians are aware of what's happening in the wider scientific yeah. field. You yep. know, that's, you don't have to be an expert in it, but, you know, have, have enough, uh, information to hand mm. that you can, you know, there will be families asking questions mm. and you can at least point them in the right direction yep. for the evidence base and, yep. and where they can go to get reliable information on yep. things that might be of interest and relevant to them. Yeah. I think you've hit the nail on the head for that one because I think in terms of the amount of information that's out there, mm. families will be subjected to that, but so will we. Yeah. If it's an area that we're not really familiar with, mm. we'll get pulled in exactly the same way because They'll use like some some websites might be a lot more sexy and they'll have more like, you know, nicer graphics. Yeah. They'll use words that really will pull you in. Yep. Um, but you really need to have that discerning voice. And and in the early days when well, there's more vulnerability as mm-hmm. well, you know, if we're looking at cord blood, what's this mean? Where's the state of the evidence at? Well, if yep. we know what that is as our role as experts to know at least where the evidence is sitting yep. or where to point people in the right direction, yep. then you know, you're going to spend less time you know, in that wastage period, aren't you? Like just looking for things that might not match. and Yeah, and dedicating yeah. all the time and energy mm. to that where, yeah, you can direct them and, yeah. and shine a spotlight on those yeah. those places they can go for yeah. for the evidence. And there were a lot of big words in that episode, I remember. Oh. And she did such a good job explaining them because yeah. I was like, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, but my take home from that was, you know, it's like an anti-inflammatory for the brain. You know, like yeah. that's when, you, when you, you think about what you're trying to do in that early phase and, and yeah. the different phases of it, I really, really like that. Yeah, yeah. she made something that, yeah, felt really daunting <laughs> yeah. at the start seem yeah. much more relatable by the end. Yeah, so, yeah that's yeah. right. Yep. And there's Hats best off to Taylor for that. There, yeah. Yes, she did such a good job. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, when we're talking about breast practice principles, I think, and clinical guidelines, I think, you know, what I'm really excited about, and we talked about it in our uh, chat with Mark Peterson, Mm -hmm. are these um, clinical guidelines for adults that he kind of alluded to and and left a bit of an Easter egg for us. Yeah, he did, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. It's good to know that's coming. I think we, what a big job, my goodness. There's obviously going to be so much there to do and, it's still uh, the thing that really catches me out with that particular episode when I, when I told people about it is the fact that he has to justify to GPs <gasps> that you can be an adult with cerebral palsy, you don't grow out of it. That is burnt into my brain. Same. I, yeah. I, I still remember that gasp moment that we both had. Yeah. <laughs> but that just shows why it's so important to have clinical guidelines mm-hmm. and to know that they're there because there's so much education. and. Yep. As health professionals, we can never assume we know it all. And, Mm. you know, most of us already know that, but it's good to know that there's people with expertise in different areas that can help us. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, for for people in the adult area, watch this space. Yeah. Mm. And I think that episode with Mark really highlighted the transition from childhood to adulthood and the challenges that can bring for for families and people with disabilities. Um, And, you know, my key take home from that, you know, I think we all kind of, know it anecdotally but 
it's not always put down on paper for us is is mm. the focus on mental as well as physical health. Yeah, that's right. And I and I like how that sort of related back to even Nadine when she was talking about pain and yeah. and she kept saying it's not okay. Like it's yeah. not okay to just be because in pain. you live with it doesn't make it yeah okay. That's or right. Normal. Yeah, 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 that's right. And that message needs to be. It needs to be, you know, spoken about so much more because mm. the impact that has on that person in terms of their mental health. Yeah. The the link that had to all the psychological morbidity was really yeah. disturbing. Yeah. And more needs to be done, obviously, yeah. in that area. But yeah. you know, it starts with identifying it and yeah. then you can try to find solutions from it. Yeah. And mm. I think Mark's other key message was it, it has to start early. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we need to do more early. And often to support this really strong sense of self mm-hmm. for for children mm-hmm. and for families, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately that enables them to be really strong advocates for themselves yeah. as they yep. you know go through these phases of transition yep. and move into services where there might not be as aware, as much awareness That's around right. their you know the challenges that they face. Yeah. And I think that comes down to an area I know where we're both really interested in is, is physical activity. Mm. You know, there are, when you're thinking about what that looks like, it'll look different across the different levels of functional mobility. Mm-hmm. But the point is we're trying to find ways to be as physically active as we can because yeah. and be included, you know, because those things do actually have a big impact on all the things that Mark was talking about. Yeah. You know, you're kind of like it's mental a, and physical health. If yeah. we're talking about that, I think, you yeah. know, being active is one of the key things that we can do to really tr- mm. make a difference in in both of those areas mm. of health. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, that, I, I love everything about best clinical practice guidelines. I think <laughs> it just embodies so much work yeah. um, that has been done and puts it in a place where it's, you know, if you want to know the state of the evidence, this is where you look to because it's really summarised high quality level research yeah. um, and it's, it's a really reliable source. Ed, what do you think about all things when it relates to best practice guidelines? That's a big question. <laughs> I'm not sure uh, non uh, or professionals in healthcare would care too much about what uh, the star of the Tell to Ed segment would think about these things. Um, <laughs> I'm about to take over the show, so yeah. uh, I've had a few more minutes this episode than in others. The foot is firmly wedged in the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Look, the the evidence based practice. Um, I'm I'm trying to think of of like that definition that takes in the the three parts of it. It's the yeah. You'll have to help me out well, with what this. Andrew Whitehouse brought Like the, the definition of an evidence-based practice isn't just the scientific empirical evidence. It's yeah. looking at the values of people who are the yeah. consumers as well as clinical expertise. Yeah. 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 So I think any of those things in isolation and even th- to a lay person like myself, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to take any one of those in isolation. And even two out of the three don't quite give you the full picture and, just pure common sense would tell you that there is there is so much worth in making sure that you've got um, like values and information and all that from each one of those three mm. segments that mm-hmm. kind of makes up the best evidence-based practice. And yeah. I'm surprised that, um, you know, clinicians and other professionals would rely on any one part of that trio yeah. um, and yeah. even two out of the three, like yeah. given that obviously with, with – Researchers like yourselves, it can be very difficult to get a hold of that that research information, and I appreciate that. You mm. know, for people who you know don't have a university um, affiliation, maybe they don't get access to all those journals and books yeah. and articles and that. Yeah. But I'd like to think that you know there are places 
that you can get a hold of that information. And obviously, we're trying to do our best over the, you know, the course of 50-odd episodes to try to highlight some of those things in this field. Mm. Um, but yeah, I can see that it's such an important part that really should be part and parcel of the, the entire process of any clinician or researcher's yeah. work. I like that you brought it back down to the, the actual definition of evidence-based practice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it actually Tying just, all the threads together. It actually really does. It's probably the part that, yeah, <laughs> when you think about how that all works, yeah, yeah. I think that it's so true because, um, yeah, you can't rely just on one. You, I mean, clinical expertise, for example, is what we've got. It's what's in our hands. It's, yeah. it's there. It's powerful, really important. You, you couple that with knowledge yep. um, and the evidence, which these best practice guidelines do allow us to have. Yep. And then the whole whole power of co-design, talking mm-hmm. to families about what it is that they want, what's valuable to them. Yeah. You put that together, you've got evidence-based practice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we're talking about evidence-based practice and evidence for why we're doing what we do mm-hmm. and guidance that we might be providing to families or, mm-hmm. or anyone, you know, in the community, I think we can look at all of that through the lens of Ben Jackson's episode. Oh, and one of my favourites. Which I think ultimately is a, you know, an overarching guide for how to effectively communicate with people, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, I listen to that episode all the time because there's so many pearls of wisdom <laughs> there. Great voice as well, as I've heard <laughs> lots of comments about how good his voice is. Um, look, I think he spoke a lot about, you know, just goal setting mm-hmm. and the power of that and the expectation effect that is put alongside that. Yep. And then the two-sided messaging, I can't get past that, which yes. is sort of coupled with the inoculation theory. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of think, okay, well, if you, it's really important to know what else is out there. Yep acknowledge it, give people credit for that, but then to refute it and yeah. to sort of say, look, actually the evidence is much stronger in this area, but yep. you you don't just drum in one side of that. Yeah, because that can have the opposite effect That's to what right. you're intending. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And that whole, um, the trait, you know, we all have our own tendencies to, you tell me this and I'll go right against it. I'm going to yeah. prove you wrong. Reactance and, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah, right. all those things. Yeah. Yep. And yep. I, I just liked how he sort of laid all of that out. There's so, so many tools there. Yeah. Mm. And you know, we learned about some powerful weapons of, of influence, but yes. ultimately, you know, one of the most powerful things is is just to be kind and be likable <laughs> and, and communicate in a really, yep. you know, open, honest yep. and and kind way. Yep. And the soft skills basically yeah. is what really highlighted that. You know, yep. we we can have the knowledge. You can we all talk about bedside manner. You yep. know, we know what that looks like and yep. feels like when you have that experience. But mm-hmm. if you can communicate that in a sensitive way, understanding where people are at, knowing that and take and understanding their their perspective. Yeah. He spoke a lot about, you know, taking the perspective yeah. of another person. Yeah. Um, and to some tools about that might be to, you know, sort of reflect on what someone said right there and then. So you, you actually understand that person's perspective yeah. rather than walking away and going, well, I'll let them digest on that for the next week. And, yeah, and lecture you know, them. And, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. So yeah. I, I really liked how he did that. And the, the weapons of influence, are, you know, there's lots of things there that, to take home. But at the end of the day, I think we are trying to communicate what our knowledge, yep. communicate what's out there. Mm-hmm. And we need to be careful because you can take it down a direction where people might feel compelled. They have to do something. Yes. Or, um, yeah. And they just don't have the resources or the, right. yeah, the, yep. the capacity at that time to be able to take that on. And, mm. and then they end up feeling guilty that they, you know, That's this is something that should be want. really important, is really yeah. important from what this, com- from this conversation, I feel like I should be doing this, but I just don't have the time or mm-hmm. the resources mm-hmm. to be able to make that happen. Yep. And they come away feeling really guilty. Yep. Yep. You've got to read the situation. I like how he said in that episode, um, you know, you might not have to fix it in that <laughs> 
one instance. It's yeah. building that relationship and you've got time. Yeah. And, you, you know, then you can help people through that decision-making process. And it goes back to envisage. It goes back to healthy mothers, healthy families yeah. when they do have phases of, you know, of grief or grief or information seeking phase. And then yeah. they've got this, you know, there's different phases that you do go through. Yep. Acknowledge that and yeah. and try to fit in with that and yeah. help people out that way. Yeah. yeah, and ultimately the the power of people mm. and and social networks and social support is yes. is so important. And you know, I think again mm. reinforced by Envisage and Healthy Mothers, Healthy Families, yeah. and all of the other um, you know components of co design that we talked about. That's something. The power of people is something that has yep. come up repeatedly yep. in yep. anything that is co designed with families. They they thrive on that support. That's right, yeah. So they seem, again, I think I say this a lot, but it seems simple. But if you are doing those things and providing support, helping build those connections, mm-hmm. listening, um, and then guiding them along the way, you know, that is best practice. You, you're doing it. Yep. Um, and all we're trying to do here is go, okay, there's there's new things that might be coming about. There might be better ways that we can do it. It'll make time more efficient for us, more effective, better outcomes. And that's yeah. just the whole point of just gradually building on that knowledge. Yep. Yeah. So – Hopefully, yeah, I like that. Yeah, I think that's ended on a really beautiful note, mm. and you know, some some reflections for our listeners who have gone on this journey with us through yeah. season two so far. There's yep. still more to come. Yeah, um, you know, things that you can take away and start to to implement in in your day to day practice. Yeah, love it. Absolutely love it. Well, thank you so much for listening so far. You know, we we can't wait for the next part. You know, we'll, we'll be back in September. So uh, stay tuned. We've already got a lot of great episodes lined up, some amazing researchers that we've been so keen to talk to. Yeah. Um, so we've got them all lined up, ready to go. So we can't wait to share that with you. And remember, if you want to go back to any of the back catalogue, there's a lot there now to listen to. Is, yeah. <laughs> what is it? 59 episodes? Something like that. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. That's really, really cool. <laughs> so hopefully this episode helps to bring it all together and, you know, you can go back and listen to all the other ones as well for more detail. So remember to head to our website, researchworks.net, which has them all listed out there, links mm-hmm. to all the researchers and to the papers yep. and a CPD form there to help you with, uh, you know, collating all that information as yeah. well. Yeah. But we will, you know, say goodbye to you for now. Yes. And we really look forward to speaking to you again after our break. And I'm looking forward to hearing about all the restaurants that Dana's going to. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm going on holiday. If you haven't gathered that, I'm about to travel and I'm going to get my Snickers bar, <laughs> maybe three or four. Yeah. And um, yeah, we'll have a good chat about all of that when we come back. Yeah. Chat to you guys all soon. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.